when I was around 14 years old, one day I was out riding my bicycle headed to a friend's house, and I was obeying all the traffic laws that a bicycler is supposed to obey and just riding along, and next thing I know out of the nowhere, this lady driving a car hits me, and I fly off my bicycle up over the hood onto the ground, my bicycle is destroyed, and uh, I'm not faring much better physically, particularly my knee. And so I really needed to go to a doctor, get examined, to see what the deal was and to know what to do because of my condition <clears throat> in order to recover. And so that's what I did. It would have been crazy for me not to go to a doctor and get examined, but I did that and found out that there was a problem with my knee, did a little surgery, and then I'm back on the way to recovery and I can ride a bicycle today. I don't choose to do that, but I can if I wanted to. And uh, the key to recovery, the key to moving forward was the examination. The examination was the key. Now, Paul and his companions visited this town, Thessalonica. And we're digging into this little letter that he wrote the Thessalonians who believed in Jesus Christ as a result of Paul and his companions' presence there over a very short period of time. Paul wasn't there long because the people in Thessalonica that did not believe in the gospel were very antagonistic, and Paul and his companions had to leave. And because of the short nature of his trip there, he later wanted to write them and encourage them in their new faith. And specifically, he's writing this book to encourage them as to how they should wait for the return of Jesus. It's just this little guidebook on how to properly wait for the return of Jesus. And so we're going to dig into that this morning in chapter 2. So look with me at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. If you didn't bring your Bible with you this morning, uh, I'd encourage you to pick up the Pew Bible there right in front of you, and you can look, look at page 159. That's the New Testament, so you, your pages start renumbering towards the right side of that Bible. I don't know why they did that in the Pew Bible, but anyway, if you turn to page 159 towards the left, you're going to be in some Old Testament book. If you turn to page 159 from the right, you'll be in... First Thessalonians, so hopefully that clarifies, and that's the least clear thing I'll say today, hopefully. All right, First Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. For you know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain, but after suffering and being insulted, just as you know, in Philippi, we were bold to speak to you in our God the gospel of God in much trouble. <clears throat> For our exhortation is not from error, it's not from uncleanness, it's not from deceit, but just as we have been tested and approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we are speaking. Not as to please men, but God, who examines our hearts. We never came in flattering speech, just as you know, nor do we come with a pretext of greed. God is our witness. We are not seeking glory from men, not from you or from anyone else, even though our Authority as apostles of Christ would have made us able to do that. But becoming gentle among you as 
A nursing mother cherishes her children. In this way, we felt strong feelings for you. We were pleased to give not only the gospel to you, the gospel of God to you, but our very lives. Because we, we love you. You became beloved to us. You remember, brothers, our labor and our hardship. Night and day, working so that we would not be a burden to any of you, we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God, as to how devout and uprightly and blamelessly we became to you who believed. Just as you know, exhorting you, Encouraging you, imploring each one of you as a father his children. So that you might walk worthy of God who called you into his own kingdom and glory. I want you to notice, if you just read through that passage. And you begin to pick out the things that are emphasized in that passage. You just read through it. And you say, what in this passage is really emphasized? I think one of the first things that's just going to come out to you in terms of emphasis in this passage is the gospel. You notice that almost every single verse in those 12 verses either directly comments about the gospel or indirectly implies the gospel by virtue of what they're saying, how they're saying it, how they're exhorting, what they're going through. I mean, the gospel is just saturating this passage. You see, Paul... And his companions go to Thessalonica to proclaim the gospel there. And everything that they were doing there had to do with the gospel. Now, just to be clear, I want to make sure we understand the content of Paul's message, the gospel. So God created all things, created creation as we know it so that we might enjoy it and that we as his people, as human beings, might enjoy perfect fellowship with him in a perfect creation. So God created all that we see for our enjoyment in the relationship we are to experience with him, perfect fellowship. But we sinned, and sin broke the world, and sin broke that fellowship. And God sent Jesus Christ, his son, to redeem everything by virtue of his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. And by a personal decision of faith in Jesus Christ, each one of us can experience God's redemption, the forgiveness of our sins, the restoring of that relationship, so that now, through faith in Jesus Christ, we are waiting for the day that Jesus Christ returns and makes everything right again and gives us those who trust in Jesus, eternal life. That was the content of the message that Paul and his companions brought to the Thessalonians. But it wasn't just about announcing content. It wasn't about just giving information. You see, with the announcement of the good news, that God has set in motion redemption for everyone and that everyone through a personal decision of faith in Jesus Christ can experience that redemption, that announcement in and of itself created a call for response. 
Every time the gospel is announced, inherited in that, in that announcement is an invitation to respond. So they were called to decide, to make a decision whether or not they would follow Jesus Christ. We ought to understand that when he was presenting the gospel, there was a call for a decision. And that experience right there led to the Thessalonians trusting in Jesus Christ. And everything that Paul was doing, everything that his companions were doing and saying was all about the gospel. That's what they cared about. And that's what mattered most to them. And there was good reason. Look at verse 1. He says in verse 1, you know that our visit to you was not in vain. Well, why wasn't their visit to the Thessalonians in vain? Because Paul and his companions were able, in the midst of incredible difficulty, to proclaim the gospel. The thing that made the trip to Thessalonica worthwhile and meaningful is the fact that Paul and his companions were able to proclaim the gospel in the midst of difficulty. Had they not proclaimed the gospel the trip would not have been meaningful. It would not have mattered. What really mattered and what made this trip really mattered was the fact that Paul and his companions were able to proclaim the gospel. Think about your life. Think about the whole course of your life. Some of you are just getting started. You seniors are fixing to move on to another phase of life. It's going to be pretty incredible and amazing. You have big dreams and big aspirations. You want to go out there and get an education or get a job or get a life or get a wife or a a husband and you want to have a family, you want to have a home, you want to have a career, you want to have a a purpose. Well, what's going to happen if in 40, 50, 60 years from now you get to the end of your life only to discover everything you did was in vain? I mean, wouldn't that be terrible? I mean, nobody wants that. There's not a single senior or a junior or a sophomore in high school that right now is thinking, man, my ambition is to just get out of high school and go spend the rest of my life on vanity. That's not their aspiration. Nobody in here wants to get to his or her end of life and discover it was all in vain. You know what the antidote to vanity is? The antidote to vanity is proclaiming the gospel in all you do and all you say. You see, if Jesus Christ is returning, then what really matters is the gospel. And the only way you can avoid wasting your life and all your pursuits is to make sure that all your pursuits become a vehicle for sharing the gospel. In your work, in your play, everything you do can be a vehicle for, for proclaiming the gospel. And the proclamation of the gospel is how you escape the vanity of this world. You know, recently a guy named Cannon White was the chapel speaker at Wheaton College. Cannon is an Anglican priest in Baghdad, Iraq. This is the third time he's spoken for chapel in Wheaton, and all three times he's ended his sermon with a phrase um, that has come out of his experiences in Iraq. It's a phrase that he is, he is really excited about sharing with these students because he wants them to really see beyond what many people see when they look at his life. When many people look at his life, they think, man, you need to be careful. You need to watch out for yourself. You need to take care. And, and it would be 
um, something you would expect someone to say when you think about what he's faced. In the last 10 years, he's had 1,200 of his church members killed in Iraq. Everywhere he goes to do visitation or to see people or to help people, he's got to be with an armed guard. I mean, you can understand why people would say, be careful, take care. But you know what he says to those students when he does chapel? He says, don't take care. Take risks. Take risks for the gospel. Now, that right there is a great example of a life that is combating vanity by sharing Christ no matter what. Now, I know Living here in Abilene is not living like living in Thessalonica. And it's not like living in Baghdad, Iraq. But I don't want you to think just because today you won't be arrested for sharing the gospel, that sharing the gospel is still not a risky affair. Remember that our battle is not against flesh and blood. And if that is true, and that's exactly what the Bible teaches then if you share the gospel here where God has placed you, you are taking a spiritual risk in the middle of a spiritual battle, and I can promise you there will be spiritual ramifications that will create trouble in your life. I just want to tell you, the only way to avoid vanity is to take the risk to share the gospel right where God has planted you. Now, if you read through this passage and you look for something else that's emphasized in this passage, you're going to see again and again how Paul and his companions are talking about their lives. They're talking about proclaiming the message and they're talking about the kind of life they were living in front of the Thessalonians. And what you see is that their lives matched the message they were proclaiming. So they're proclaiming the gospel and then they're talking about how their lives actually match that message. And talk about profound. I mean, really, that's how you escape vanity. When you can proclaim the message and your life matches the message and your message is the gospel. Now, look at, well, look at what happens here. Look at, back at chapter 2. That first section there talks about the suffering they're experiencing. He talks about Philippi, and then he also talks about what's happening there in Thessalonica. In Philippi, Paul and his companions were stripped publicly and then beaten with rods. That's a beating that can kill you. Paul later describes all these various beatings he received because of his stand for Christ. He says he can't even count how many times he was beaten. Beaten without number. Here he is willing to walk into a situation and willing to suffer the difficulties of the spiritual battle. And he sees those difficulties not as a problem but an opportunity to share the gospel. He counts the suffering joyfully because he knows his suffering gives platform to seeing the suffering servant. You see, his message is about Jesus Christ who suffered. And here the messenger is suffering while he proclaims the message. His life matched the message. He talks about the fact that he doesn't want to please people, but he wants to please God. Again, his life is matching the message. 
Jesus Christ sought to please the Father in all that he did. He was not living for himself. He was living for the Father, seeking to glorify the Father. said, I've glorified your name. And that's exactly what we see in Jesus. And then we see Paul and his companions. They are living a life to please the Father, not to please themselves or anyone else. And their lives are matching the message. You can see that they're after the glory of God in that section. They want God to be glorified above anything else. They were not going to use their authority as apostles to gain glory for themselves. They were using everything they were and all that God had given them to gain glory for God. Their lives were matching the message. And then you can see that they were gentle like nursing mothers with their children, having this deep desire, being well-pleased, just like a mom is with her children, to give not only the gospel, but their very lives. I love that today's text mentions moms. How perfect is that? And that the illustration Paul uses to describe what his giving his life away with the gospel looked like and the best description he could give that describes the kind of giving their lives away that would make them understand his perspective was the picture of a nursing mother giving life to her children. I love that. You know, moms, if you're here today and you're looking for a little encouragement, just know that the Scripture has just now said Happy Mother's Day to you. Because, because the way you give your life to your children is a good picture of how Jesus Christ has given His life for all of us. And that's what Paul wanted them to see. Look, Jesus Christ gave His life for us. And our lives are matching that message because we're giving our lives for you. Moms, there's no more noble pursuit in life than giving your lives so that your children might find Jesus. That's how your life matches your message. And notice they also talk about how They uh, worked hard, look at this, their labor and their hardship, working night and day. I mean, these guys put in lots of hours for the express purpose that nobody in Thessalonica would be burdened by them. Why? Because they didn't want to be a distraction from the message. They wanted nothing to distract from the message. They came in there temporarily, and when they came in temporarily, they said, we're not going to ask anything of you because we don't want any request of you to distract from the message that what we really have is everything to offer you. We are not asking for anything. We are offering you everything. And we're going to work so hard that you're not distracted from that. We're going to admonish you. We're going to encourage you. We're going to exhort you. And we're going to do this with the kind of behavior that's so upright and so right before the Lord that you're not going to be able to look at anything we're doing and say what you're doing doesn't match what you're saying, so we're going to reject what we're saying. They made sure that everything they did down to working hard day and night and how they lived in front of the Thessalonians gave them every reason even more so to focus on the gospel. They lived and interacted, admonished, exhorted, and implored them in such a way that all they could see was the gospel. 
And the illustration here is so cool. It's about dads and their kids. He's saying, in the same way a dad exhorts, encourages, and implores their children, that's how we're interacting with you so that nothing else is seen but the gospel. The purity of our lives and the devotion of our work is expressly so that you can see Jesus Christ. Dads, I can't imagine a better Mother's Day gift to your wife than to make a decision today as a father. Lord, I want you to help me to be the kind of dad who does everything he does so that the gospel of Jesus Christ comes into clear vision in my kids' lives. I don't want anything I do to distract my kids from seeing the gospel. I want everything I do to be a way my kids can see the gospel. I can't imagine a mom in here that doesn't want to be married to a man who wants to devote his life to his kids so they see a clear vision of the gospel. And Paul uses that as an example of how everything he did was so that people could see the gospel. See, their lives matched the message. And there's no way to escape the vanity of this world until your life matches the message and your message is the gospel. And the key is examination. You think about the, the other thing that's emphasized in this passage. You clearly see the gospel is emphasized. You clearly see that this life matching the message is emphasized. And then you see something that Paul says about them. He says, God has entrusted us with the gospel. You know what kind of people we are among you. And what does he say? He puts this all on the statement in verse 4 about having been tested and approved. That word there that's used there is used to describe someone that goes through a test, is proven to be something, and because they're proven to be something, they are then approved to do something else. So what Paul is saying is there that God has taken us, he has tested us, he has proved us, and then he has approved us to be entrusted with the gospel. And notice, he says there that it is God who examines our hearts. And then he makes a statement several times about God being a witness. God can see into who I am and to every corner of who I am. And as God is my witness, I can tell you that this is what he sees and this is real. They just keep saying about this. God has examined us. God has tested us. God has proven us. And God has approved us. And we are here because God is our witness. The the key to having a life that matches your message is God's examination. Being able to say, God is my witness. I mean, what does the examination of God look like? I mean, you think back to the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 6, he comes into God's presence. And what does he say? The Old Testament prophet Isaiah says, Woe is me, I am sinful. He comes into God's presence. What becomes glaring and obvious to his life is his sin. You know what he finds in the moment that he is overwhelmed with his sin in the light of God's holiness? Forgiveness. 
he finds forgiveness. What about King David, the king over all of Israel? In 2 Samuel chapter 12, he falls under the examination of God. And God comes to him through the form of prophet Nathan and calls David to account. And you know what David sees in that moment? He sees his sin. And when David sees his sin in the light of God's holiness, you know what he does in Psalm 51? He cries out for the mercy of God. You know what he finds? Forgiveness. The Apostle Paul, who's writing this letter to the Thessalonians, before he came to trust in Jesus Christ, as he walked down the road to Damascus to further persecute and kill Christians, he had an encounter with Jesus Christ when he came into the presence of God, under the examination of God. Do you know what he experienced? He realized just how wrong he was. He would later save himself I am the chief of sinners. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Do you know what he says in conjunction with that? So that all of us could see him and know that God's grace can touch anyone because Paul found in that moment forgiveness. Examination by the Lord is the key. And if you will humble yourself and come to the presence of God and ask God, search my heart and see if there be an offensive way in me, would you just reveal what's in me? Then He will unveil your sin. It will become glaring and overwhelming. And in that moment of examination, when the sin of your life becomes so overwhelming on the backdrop of the absolute holiness of God, you know what your greatest need will be in that moment? The gospel. And if in your greatest need you find the grace of Christ in the truth of the gospel and it totally revolutionizes your life and the Spirit of God grabs hold of a submitted heart and leads you forth in a life following Christ, you know what's going to happen? When the gospel saturates your life because of your need before God, the the, the thing that's going to overflow out of your mouth and your life is the gospel. If you will put yourself under the examining holiness of God so that you might say, God is my witness, then you will find that the gospel so saturates your life that it will naturally overflow out of your mouth and out of your life. And your life will match the message. And the message will be the gospel. And you will escape vanity. You will do what verse 12 says. Paul says to the Thessalonians, everything we're doing, everything we're doing, is so you would live a life worthy of God who called you into His kingdom and His glory. There's a day coming when Jesus Christ is going to return and establish His kingdom to the glory of God. And we are waiting for that day. And we are being admonished to live a life worthy of God while we wait. To escape vanity of not waiting well. You do that by coming into the examination of God. And I want you to note here that Paul is not talking about examination here in this passage as if it's a one-time occurrence. 
The language he uses here, the word choices are specifically to create the picture in the Thessalonians' minds. Paul is able to be all that he is, not because of one moment, but because of a daily, regular experience of coming into the holy presence of God, seeing his sin unveiled, and coming to a place of desperate need for grace. And the gospel just saturates his life every day, and it just overflows out of everything he says and everything he does. It all depends on examination. Coming to the Lord, letting Him point out your problems, and letting Him perform the miracle of the gospel every day, every hour of our lives. If we will do that, then tomorrow, at the end of the workday, You've put in eight or ten hours of hard labor. You've put in eight or ten hours of hard work. You've done all this effort. You spend all this time. You do all these things to do your job, whatever your job is. Tomorrow, when you get to the end of your work day, you will be able to say, it was not in vain. You see, if everything you do tomorrow at work becomes a vehicle for saying and proclaiming the gospel because you have been examined by God and the gospel has saturated your life and it just flows out of everything you do, you will escape vanity and you will spend your hours in your day doing whatever it is that you do in the workplace and you will find purpose and meaning in that because of the gospel. I mean, don't you want to spend all day tomorrow working and get to the end of the day and say, it was not in vain, the gospel. There's some moms in here. You've spent years and hours and just untold time taking care of your kids. And many of you in here are moms of young kids. And, and, and I'm telling you, there is a lot of work going into being a mom with little kids around. You spend all day long, 24 hours a day, no break. You, you can't sleep at night. You got sick kids. You got well kids. You got diapers to deal with. You got all kinds of issues. I, I don't know of another segment of the population that at times of being spent and worn to a frazzle that you don't need to be able to say, everything I'm doing as a mom is not in vain. And I'm just going to tell you, when you let your heart get saturated by the gospel, then all you do is going to be because of the gospel. And all you do and all that you say is about the gospel. Then nothing you do is in vain. Everything you do matters. And students, you want to go to school and do all this studying and take all these tests and chemistry tests, biology tests, speech tests, whatever test it is. And you think, what in the world is the point? Let the gospel saturate your heart so that in all you do and all that you say, the gospel finds a vehicle and none of what you do is ever going to be in vain. Ever. There's only one way we can escape vanity. It's by coming under the examination of God. Getting saturated with the gospel. I just want to tell you, waiting on Jesus Christ has never been as good is when your heart is saturated by the gospel and it just overflows in all you say, in all you do. It's the best kind of life. And so, 
I join Paul and exhort you to live a life worthy of God as you wait for Jesus.